0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: Hi, everybody, and oh, what a year it has been! I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator and debate referee at Intelligence Squared U.S., and we are taking a look back at our year 2020 to share with you some of the best of what we did. And what a year it has been, as I said. We've had a pandemic. We've had protests. We had a very contentious election, an election that launched its own protests. So we did a lot of arguing in 2020 as a society. But the best of it, I would argue, is what we brought you. And that was argument with a purpose, the purpose of persuasion. That's what a debate is. And that's a different kind of argument. That can be a very, very good, enlightening kind of argument. And despite all of the barriers that this year threw up for us, we were able to keep going. So here's a look at some of the best from IQ2 in 2020 and we're going to start with a hot excerpt from a debate we held in new york city in january when we were still in front of a live audience remember those days the resolution was anti-zionism is the new anti-semitism i want to begin
2: by clearing up uh, a few points so we don't waste your time uh, debating them first when we say anti-zionism we do not mean criticism of Israel. Not only is criticism of Israel not anti-Zionist, it is essential to Zionism. So if you think that Benjamin Netanyahu is a horrible leader, I am not here to quarrel with you. If you think that Israel's occupation of the West Bank needs to end right now, I am not here to quarrel with you. I could go on. To criticize Israel legitimately is always legitimate. But anti-Zionism isn't criticism of Israel. It is a call, whether by force or other means, for Israel's destruction. Ask yourselves, if Israel were to cease to exist, what realistically would be the ramifications? What would that mean, not in theory but in practice, for 7 million Jews living in Israel? Would they be safe? Or would countries in the West accept them with open arms despite this being an age of closing borders? Ladies and gentlemen, all of us in this room are aware that the hatreds that led the Jewish people to tragedy in the beginning of the 20th century are stirring again. They are happening on the political right under one guise, but no less dangerously on the left under the other. Now is the time to call out prejudices with dangerous real-world consequences by their proper name, lest they infect us with their poison. That is why I urge you to vote for the motion that anti-Zionism is a new anti-Semitism and must be treated as such.
3: Youssef will talk about how equating anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism hurts Palestinians. But I want to start by talking about how it hurts Jews. The number of Jews who oppose anti-Semitism, who oppose Zionism, is not marginal, as Brett suggests. The Satmar Hasidim held an anti-Zionist rally in 2017 of 20,000 people. That's larger than AIPAC's annual conference. Two-thirds of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel, the fastest-growing Jewish population in both Israel and the American Jewish community, reject Zionism. And the the number of progressive American Jews who reject Zionism is growing, too. When you ask American Jews in polls, if the two-state solution is dead, would you prefer one state in which millions of West Bank Palestinians lack basic rights, or one equal state that is not a Jewish state, a majority of American Jews favor the one equal option that is not a Jewish state, the anti-Zionist option. If you vote yes on this resolution, you are calling those Jews anti-Semites. And if you think this doesn't matter, I would note that over the last two years, a Jewish teacher has been fired and another forced to resign at New York high schools because they expressed anti-Zionist views. That's where this resolution leads. In the name of fighting anti-Semitism, Jews are denied free speech and lose their jobs.
4: What if anti-Zionism is not the new anti-Semitism? What if this is what you're going to vote? What are you saying then? What are you telling me? That anti-Zionism is okay? It's legitimate? It's fine? Let me tell you something about my Zionism what Zionism has given me. Zionism is the reason that as a Jew, I can walk with my head held up high, secure in the knowledge that I have a home, that I have a space where I am safe, where someone has my back. I am secure in the knowledge that we can have a vibrant, crazy debate where all we do pretty much is criticism of Israel. We do so much of it, I think that we've turned it into an export industry. Zionism has enabled criticism of Israel. It's in the knowledge that I no longer have to ask other people to decide whether my people live or die because I have power to defend myself, real power, Not imaginary power, imaginary power is something Jews had for a long time, real power, not in the hands of others, that we have to be finally able to decide for ourselves. This is what Zionism has given me. And when I listen to the notion that anti Zionism is growing, and it is, and especially in various circles and young people, what I feel in my stomach is dread. I want you to consider the real-world implications of anti-Zionism. Are you telling me that for there to be rights for Palestinians, my liberty, my dignity have to go away? Are you telling me that for Jews to fight for a better America, they have to say that Zionism is illegitimate?
5: So while I learned lessons in the schoolyard about anti-Semitism here in America, it is in being Palestinian that I came to understand Zionism. Zionism is a political ideology aimed at the very destruction of our peoplehood. It is the political ideology of Zionism that legitimizes the ethnic cleansing of my hometown and so many others. It's because of Zionism that a Jewish person from Tallahassee or Tokyo can live on the land of a Palestinian refugee languishing in a nearby refugee camp, denied repatriation purely because they were born to the wrong religion. It's because of Zionism that my toddler, who is still in diapers, can be referred to in the most callous and racist language as a demographic threat, merely because he's another living breathing Palestinian. It's because of Zionism that the state of Israel bars people like me from residing in my place of birth with my partner, a Palestinian from the West Bank, because the prospect of another Palestinian womb is a source of anxiety. It's because of Zionism that the state of Israel today rejects the idea of even being a state of all its citizens, and that it violently enforces policies of land seizure, denial of movement, siege and discrimination against Palestinians at various levels of society. The conflation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is preposterous on its face. The idea that merely opposing a particular political ideology makes someone a bigot and a racist is a ludicrous notion and one that seeks to effectively put a political ideology beyond reproach.
1: All right, so that took place in New York, and then our team traveled west to the campus of Stanford University. We had been wanting to get H.R. McMaster on our debate stage for a long time, and now it was finally happening. Here was our debate centered around the resolution, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. The United States is the largest producer of
6: gas and oil in the world, and next year will be the largest exporter. Whether we like it or not, the Middle East is not so strategically necessary for our survival, which means Iran does not have the levers of influence and power over us that it did. If it shuts the Straits of Hormuz down, it would be terrible for the world economy, but that's a blow to the largest importer of Middle East oil, the European Union, or the largest exporter of merchandise into the region China so we have an independence and autonomy from the region we've never enjoyed before there has always been a split in the Muslim Middle East between Shia and Persia Persians and Arabs and Sunnis but nobody in their right mind as late as 2010 or 12 would think in popular polls of the Arab world the most of the Arab split the vast majority would see the Iranian government as the existential enemy and not Israel Translated strategically, that means when we engage on maximum pressure, most of the people, most of the Muslims, that is, of the Middle East, are siding with us. That's absolutely unthinkable 10 years ago.
7: The regime is more mendacious than they pointed. The biggest crime this regime has committed is against the Iranian people. For 40 years, it's not just the last year, for 40 years this regime has lied to its people, it has... uh, bankrupted the country, it is incompetent, it is corrupt, and it is wreaking havoc in the region. That's not what we're discussing. A vote for one side or the other is not a vote for this regime. This regime deserves to be condemned, but this policy deserves to be rejected because it is unclear on its purpose It is random in uh, the way it is used, and it is damaging the Iranian people, who are the only people who can change this regime. We cannot have peace in the Middle East without a more democratic Iran. A more democratic Iran can be created and will be created by the Iranian people. We cannot create (laughs) Iranian history. We don't need... We don't, we in Iran have preserved our cultural history, our cultural heritage for 2,500 years. We will continue to do it. We don't need Greek philosophers to teach us. We have our own philosophers. What we do need, what we do need is a wise U.S. policy. I am for maximum pressure, but maximum pressure on the regime, not maximum pressure on the Iranian people. I am for maximum pressure, but one that is used with a surgeon's scalpel, not a bludgeon.
1: I want to jump in with one of the core principles that your opponents are arguing. In making the case for maximum pressure, they are positing that at one pole and at the other end, the, 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 the approach that they refer to as goodwill beginning goodwill. They say the record shows goodwill does not beget goodwill with Iran. Can you take on that point? Martha?
8: Well, I'm glad you raised that question, because I thought about that the minute I heard that goodwill, conciliation. Uh, I'm not sure the kind of pressure that led to the 2015 agreement could be described as conciliatory or goodwill.
1: Let me just stop you for one second. Just for (laughs) definitional purposes, not to get you saying a lot, would you say that that agreement does demonstrate your principle, that it was conciliatory, the Iran deal? Absolutely. Okay, I want to take it back, just so we know where your opponent's Okay, 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 okay. we we
8: disagree (laughs) on that point. It'll be
1: interesting to hear why.
8: Yes. And and, uh, well, I think that there were a lot of extremely painful aspects to the sanctions that led up. In fact, we could I say, would agree with
9: that, Martha. I'm yeah. sorry. I, w- I would agree that what led up to the, the deal okay. was, was effective pressure. That's one of the points. That's why maximum pressure worked then. It works now. Ah. But, the, but the way that the deal was constructed and the artificial separation— of the narrow parts of the nuclear program mm-hmm. from Iran's nefarious activity. Actually, it didn't just, that wasn't benign. What that did is the relaxation of sanctions allowed them to ramp up that nefarious activity okay. dramatically. Much But, take it but
8: surely uh, a coordinated international diplomatic action combined with sanctions and pressure could accomplish a lot more than sanctions and the threat and use of military force. Because remember, if Iran is actually being set back in terms of its nefarious activities in the region, why did we take the very risky step of killing Soleimani, which, in effect, really, uh, consolidated the power of the regime in Ir- Iran more than it undermined it. So that, you know, that, that is a big question in my mind.
1: Abbas and Martha, um, you, you, you cited the, the missile attack that, that killed General Soleimani. Do you think that, that, that seems to be very much in the vein of maximum pressure? What is your concern
7: about that? Well, she was talking about it. My, my c- concern about it uh, is, uh, first of all, it was against international law uh, it brought the international uh, system of targeting the commander, the second person in line of an authority. I know Qasem, I don't like Qasem Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani has thousands of life on his hand, hundreds of thousands of Syrians, Iraqis, U.S. soldiers, Iranians. His forces were responsible for the suppression of Iran. Uh, but he was the second in command of an Iran. Uh, in Iran, he was the second most powerful. Com- if you go after him and hit him the way you hit him, you open the w- world to a new set of improbable things. But I want to say one point about the nuclear deal. Before you, know, before
1: you do, yeah. I just want to stand this point for a moment. I want to take it to HR. The the, the killing of General Soleimani.
7: Well,
9: I think it was the righteous use of violence, uh, and it was it was it was. Uh, <clears throat> It was righteous because of, of everything you mentioned, Abbas. And, and you know, I don't think you know, I don't really care that uh, what international law said. I think Article Two of the Constitution gave the president the authority uh, to do what he, to, to make the decision he made. Do, what, do you you, consider, do, though, do, what you have to consider, though, do you, have
1: you have really to, not do you, you really not care what
9: an international? Well, system? no, about this case. About no, no. About I mean, this, I'm, I'm not trying to be cute. No. I mean, in this situation, yeah. No, I mean, th- this is this is a man who was traveling the region at that moment for the specific purpose of planning mass murder attacks against Americans in the region, right? And so, was so it would have been negligent, <laughs> it would have been negligent not to kill him. And, and uh, in, in fact, what you have to consider, well, you have to consider, boss, you, you talk about how this could be escalatory. Actually, not attacking the IRGC directly, right? pretending like we don't know what the return address is for all, for all these deaths of Americans in the region for decades, actually allowed the Iranian regime to escalate really on its own, right? Unfettered by any kind of fear of reprisal.
7: Well, I do care about international law, and I'm <laughs> sure General McMaster does I, I know, he does. <laughs> but let me add another point to what General McMaster said. I think hearing Soleimani had one very important positive impact. It scared the bejesus out of the Iranian regime. Isn't that their point, though? No, that's part of their point. (laughs) There is a gain to be made by scaring the regime, but there is a cost to be paid by breaching international law. The United States cannot be seen as the country that can take the law into its own hand at, at any moment, not a terrorist, mere terrorist, the United States might have called him a terrorist, but he was an official member of that. What,
9: what, I, what i like to say is we were, he was a designated, ter- there was a de- designated terrorist organization by that time. And, and the definition of terrorism is the use of violence against innocents for political purposes. That's the definition of what his job was. And so he was a terrorist. He was a designated US terrorist. He was plotting against the United States. And the president has the responsibility
1: and the authority under
9: Article Two of the Constitution to protect the American people. So I didn't say that. So I, I think you made the right decision.
1: So that debate at Stanford was held on March 4th. A week later, we were all headed into it. And I mean the pandemic around the world, especially across the United States. For us, it meant no more debates in halls with live audiences. Uh, we had to pivot. First, we had to cancel, regretfully, all of those bookings and figure out another way to do what we do, and also how to make it about the moment that we were in. So we did that. We pivoted to virtual debates. Took a while to figure it out. We did some experimentation, but I think we really nailed it. The quality of the arguments totally kept up. So one of our first virtual debates had this resolution, coronavirus will reshape the global order in China's favor.
10: He says the Belt and Road Initiative is a complete waste of money. Trillions of dollars are going away. That is also, by the way, sadly, uh, an insult to the intelligence of 100 countries. Over 100 countries out of 193 countries in the world have signed up to join the Belt and Road Initiative. And why do they sign up to join the Belt and Road Initiative? Because they get railways, roads, ports, that's what the people need. And the the people's lives are being improved. So if you look at the data in terms of the density of Chinese connectivity with the rest of the world, and let's look at data, I think over 127 countries now do more trade with China than they do with the United States, much more. And China is the world's number one trading power. China is the number one country engaging the most number of people in terms of projects uh, and so on and so forth.
11: Look, I'd like to make two points. I think the U.S. has certainly not um, in its diplomacy shown itself to be Oh, very astute in dealing with this crisis, and it hasn't actually been very astute in its diplomacy in in the last couple of years. I would say this America first mentality does not translate into soft power around the world, and you can I think our audience is sophisticated enough to understand that. But what I think Minchin and I are saying is a the U.S. I mean we're talking about the impact of the coronavirus, so we're not. The Belt and Road Initiative was announced in 2013. Yes, a lot of countries have signed up. There have been projects. Uh, China's increased its integration, the question is, what's the impact of the coronavirus on the Belt and Road project? And I think what we see is that the impact of the coronavirus, as Minchin has pointed out with the Chinese economy, is going to be deleterious to that project because China will have less money. These countries will be uh, in in straightened circumstances. Um, the issue with global trade, the impact of the coronavirus on global trade, yes, a lot of countries have been increasing their trade with China over the last several decades, but uh, the impact of the coronavirus is, going to, be to, is to, going to be to diminish that trade.
10: The Chinese don't say that our civilization is the civilization that you should emulate. They say the Chinese civilization is good for the Chinese people. And you can have your own systems and you can thrive and you can work together. And for the rest of the world, it's actually easier to deal with a China that is not exporting its model to the rest of the world. They say, we will do what we have to do. You do what you have to do, and let's work together for mutual benefit. When was the last time Washington, D.C. hosted a summit meeting where all African heads of state turned up? I can't think of it.
11: Obama.
10: China. China. No, no, not all, not all turned up. But when China hosted it, they all turned up, and they all signed agreements, and they got things done. If you look at the African continent as a whole... And its perceptions of China, and I will tell you, you, since you emphasise, has COVID-19 changed anything? I would say yes. Because the Africans know that they are in deep trouble. There are very few people now assisting them in real terms. China is sending plane loads. That makes a difference. That's COVID-19 result.
12: Well, uh, I think... uh Just just want to pick up on what Keisha has just said. Uh, Those countries in Africa may like to have PPEs from China, but I'm sure they're not inviting the Communist Party over to become their, to run their governments, because there's a limit to what China's appeal uh, can be. Uh, China's uh, sort of late stage success in containing the the coronavirus in China uh, adopts some methods that we should consider about adopting as well, uh, because they turned out to be quite effective. But then China's success comes in a package. That is, if uh, you really cannot pick the outcome China has produced without picking its system as well. So if you want to uh, sort of have the kind of effective response to China, even after initial stumbling, you have to have the surveillance state. You have to have the Communist Party watching everything you do. do, you, do. you have to have your internet sensitive. I don't think many people in the world would like to live under a system uh, as I described.
1: And so our season went on. We were now all virtual all the time. Now, back in the spring, we knew we had an election coming up in the fall, and we knew back in the spring that electoral votes were going to be, you know, something that would matter, that people would be counting and paying attention to. So we did a debate in the spring with this resolution. The Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. Let's take a
13: listen to that one. Uh, On a number of occasions, uh, this peculiar process set forth in the Constitution, this 11th Hour Compromise, has either failed to produce a result or has awarded the presidency to someone other than the person who amassed the most votes in the country. Um, So that's true about 1800, 1824, 1876, 1888, all are failures of different sorts. But let me fast forward a little bit to more recent examples with which people might be familiar, 2000 and 2016. So in the year 2000, of course, George W. Bush wins the presidency uh, narrowly with 271 electoral votes to Al Gore's 266, although losing the popular vote by about half a million. Of course, in in 2016, 16 years later, Donald Trump wins a decisive Electoral College victory over Hillary Clinton while losing the popular vote by nearly 3 million. Uh, And, you know, standing alone, no single incident is a complete indictment of the Electoral College. But this is an exceptionally high error rate. um, a rate of error and rate of malfunction uh, for something as consequential as the selection of the U.S. president. And I think that is especially true because we now have some political scientists predicting that we are at an increased likelihood of a recurrence of this kind of divergence between the popular vote on the one hand and the electoral college outcome on the other.
14: I just wanted to jump in on this idea of malfunctions. Um, look, we have only had three elections over the course of more than 200 years where indisputably the winner of the popular vote, or the, the winner of the indisputable popular vote did not also win the Electoral College. Three, three, you know, quote unquote malfunctions over the course of more than 200 years is not a big number. And really, if you look, what how I see those elections is those were not problems, okay? They, they reflect a problem, as I mentioned earlier, that our, our parties are broken. Maybe they're not doing a good job of coalition building and we need to come out of that. But when you look at the dynamics in 1888, Grover Cleveland The reason he won the popular vote was because he won massive landslides in a handful, just a handful of southern states. I mean, literally like 72% of the vote or something in some of those states. That was not, that would not have been a fair, just outcome if Grover Cleveland, the winner of the southern region, had been able to be president of the entire United States.
15: So I mentioned earlier in this conversation that we can't ignore the role of polarization um, uh, in in American politics and sort of driving particular outcomes. And I think the reason to be worried about popular vote electoral college splits has everything to do with the fact that there's no indication that our society or politics are going to become less polarized in the future. And so what you'll be looking at um, potentially and right now it's Democratic, Democrat, Republican, and that's the partisan valence of it. But I, I would encourage people to think of this not in terms of partisanship, but in terms of just sort of how democracy is maintained legitimacy. So what you may be looking at this year, four years from now, eight years from now, are situations where one candidate doesn't just win a couple more million votes, doesn't just win four or five more million votes, but conceivably win seven, eight, nine million more votes than their opponent, large numbers, large percentages, and does not become the president. In that scenario, the person who has won, who, who has lost rather, doesn't necessarily have a less diverse coalition, a less geographically broad coalition. It's just sort of the vagaries of chance. Their voters are geographically ill-distributed. And the result of that outcome is that the winning candidate uh, uh, not only has executive power, but because of our polarized politics and the fact that the Democratic and Republican parties are pretty much ideologically, you know, don't vary much from, from, from their polls, would mean that you would have a governing coalition that doesn't really reflect the entire public pursuing, but essentially is a factional agenda. And and I'd like to note that the framers, um, and Jefferson and Madison in particular, or Madison more than Jefferson, who worried about this in the final years of their lives, that winner-take-all for the Electoral College would essentially make factionalism of that sort much more attractive. And I, I think that's what we're witnessing.
14: I do agree that we are in a divided time. I do agree that both parties are broken. And I do agree that everybody needs to do a better job of coalition building. But I would just lay the blame equally on everybody. Everybody is doing it. I think that the Democrats feel like they see, they see weakness in the Republican Party, so they're doubling down on the cater to the base. But Republicans are also, if they weren't catering to their base so badly, they'd be building better coalitions. So I, I'm not, I just think that's what it is. I kind of want to go back to some of the safe and swing state stuff. I um, just because it's been in and out and it hasn't really been fully addressed. Uh, look, my view is there is no such thing as a permanently safe or swing state. They change all the time. Um, Kate mentioned that, you know, some think Texas could go purple soon. I was, you know, it just changes. West Virginia, people forget in 2000. If West Virginia had not flipped from a safe blue state, which it was before 2000, to a safe red one, George W. Bush would not have won that election, regardless of what happened in Florida. And you can see examples throughout history. California used to vote Republican. Texas used to vote Democrat for Jimmy Carter. There's a whole slew of Southern states that voted for Barack Obama or voted for Bill Clinton that would not dream of voting for Barack Obama. It is constantly shifting.
15: This expectation that voters in the states that 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 the, their electors will vote in accord to the partisan um, uh, choice of the state, I think sits at cross purposes with this idea that the Electoral College is meant to enhance the representation of political minorities in the country. Right, that if you live in a state where fifty point one percent of the voters supported one candidate and 49.9% of the voters supported the other candidate. And under the rules as they exist, that 49.9%, effectively half, um, is politically disenfranchised. And I would would ask uh, listeners, watchers, to consider... And the extent to which, if you don't agree with getting rid of the Electoral College, that the winner-take-all rules that we've adopted, that we've, that we've grafted on to this institution, the extent to which they serve to rob millions of people of meaningful political representation um, so, in every state of the union. Can I I come in here and respond? I want to ask a question of of, of, of Jamil. So do you think that in
9: 1976, voters in the country were uh, disenfranchised when Jimmy Carter was elected with 50.1% of the vote?
15: I think that uh, Jimmy Carter's election in 1976, um, I think the extent to which Carter was a down-the-line partisan Democrat represents a kind of disenfranchisement in that regard, right? Because it's clear from the election results that the public didn't—wanted wanted some sort of—was of, uh, divided on the kind of government they wanted, but they didn't want—I um, uh, could say—I think you'd fairly say, did not want a highly partisan form of, gov- of government. And Carter wasn't particularly highly partisan, but you see the point I'm trying to make, that um, uh, narrow decisions— like that, I think, do represent, in some regards, um, I, I some th- Americans, some Americans not getting the kind of political representation they wanted. But I also think that this example doesn't quite fit, right? Because we're not because we're, what we're talking about is the political representation of individual voters and whether or not uh, their their choice matters for the outcome. and if if you were in this minority in Virginia, um, your choice simply doesn't matter for the outcome.
16: Yeah, but
5: that's uh, just that's not true. Counts.
15: That's just not true. Of but course it, it matters for the outcome.
5: Because
9: any one voters is unlikely to switch the election, right? There's 200 million voters. Any one voter in that sense doesn't change the election. So you can say no voter matters. Voters matter eventually in the aggregate. And you can't go around in any election that's going to be won. There's going to be a losing candidate. And you can't use terms as you use, like disenfranchised, to say you lost, I'm sorry that you lost, but you were not disenfranchised, and let's not confuse those two things. I think that's a very important distinction to make. No, I
15: think, you can, I, can, I think you can use the. No, I think you can use the disenfranchisement level. If you live in a state where voting is highly racially polarized, such that your particular political group will never be able to form a meaningful majority to win that state's electoral votes, and this isn't a hypothetical. This is Mississippi. This is Louisiana. This is Alabama. Right, states where large percentages of the voters—thirty-five. 40 percent are African-American, but because of the high level of racial polarization, those voters will never, barring some real—no, let me finish—will never Please. be able to uh, form a coalition with, uh, uh, with enough white voters to win. Those voters are effectively disenfranchised when okay, they want to so, winner-take-all. So, so voters who, for example, want to abolish the income tax in a state, and they may be
9: 20 percent of the vote, they can never get a majority. Are they disenfranchised?
15: I think that is, I think, I think precisely because... No, they're not. Your answer is no. No, 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 no. You know your no, no, answer no. is no. they were no, just outvoted answer, and that's a different thing. My answer is no because it's, a, it's, a, it's an example that has no relevance in the actual way our politics plays out. In the act, in the real world, in the real world of American politics in 2020, polarization along lines of identity is the relevant form of polarization. And when we are as polarized as we are along lines of identity and geography, these two things are connected, then winner take all in states where people who represent a minority identity are unable to build large enough coalitions
1: uh, well, amounts to a kind of disenfranchisement. No one's let, polarized let, I, on I, income taxes. We also saw a summer of protest across the nation after the death of George Floyd, and we heard hard questions being asked about the police. Again, a topic we took on virtually with our program called Unresolved American Policing.
17: Nine out of 10 calls the police get are for nonviolent encounters, often have people with guns and clubs and the power to arrest make things worse, not better. People call the police because of a problem in a relationship or a beef between neighbors or because of a mental health crisis or someone who is suffering from addiction or homelessness. The guns, the pepper spray, the batons, the handcuffs, they don't solve the problems.
18: Police are a critical component and an irreplaceable component in the public safety team to provide safety to the, the public at large. We know that when police are marginalized or unable to do their jobs to the full extent, that crime tends to go up. Uh, this year, for example, homicides nationwide are up almost 15 percent.
0: The reason police respond to calls involving homelessness, drug use and mental illness is because we're the only ones that answer the phone 24-7 and show up. By the time people call police, the problem is out of control and often too dangerous for an unarmed social worker to to respond. We are not like the fire service who intentionally took on the role of emergency medical services. We simply inherited the system failures of other institutions.
19: We should not look at this as an either or. It's not clear to me, just uh, for example, that an armed agent of the state, somebody carrying a gun, is the right person to walk up to you and alert you that you have a busted taillight. That might be doing more harm than good because it's causing uh, the police to be seen as harassers rather than as helpers. So if that's what we mean by defund the police, if it's a transformation, well, I'm interested in that idea. I think that's worth a, a very serious conversation. But I do wish that the people, uh, who are behind this kind of defund language would have a little bit more clarity when communicating with the American people, because I think they would actually get a lot more support. We know just through simple economics what that means. And that means a reduced capacity for police to do what it is that they're doing. It means that they are going to have to uh, triage their decisions, which calls to take in which order. How much to divert away from proactive investigation, right? When we talk about what's proven to work, um, what I'm hearing is is, uh, a kind of uh, sense that we ought to be ignoring the extremely large body of evidence that shows that having uh, more police, better funded police in communities does an incredible amount of good.
0: Unions serve an important function for employees, especially employees in a dangerous working environment where funding is limited. There needs to be strong advocacy for safety and reasonable pay. In my experience, the unions get be- get blamed for what elected officials do. The elected officials bow too easily, in my opinion, to u- unions' political pressure. The union is playing an advocacy role. The elected officials need to play their stewardship role and strike a balance between the interests of the community and the interests of the members and their employment rights. What's happening
19: here is that the unions are collective bargaining, and they're bargaining for reductions in accountability. Uh, I will even note that police unions will come forward and oppose police reform ideas that come from other police officers. A few years ago, the Police Executive Research Forum uh, put out a a set of guidelines on the use of force, and all this thing said was that there are standards set by law, but there are best practices. We can go above and beyond the law, and police officers ought to stick to these, and nevertheless, the police uh, Police unions opposed this document. It was drafted by cops for cops. As a closing note, I'll say, I gave a kind of of middle-of-the-road answer on whether or not we should defund the police. I can give a firm answer that we should defund the police unions.
17: Police reform is about transparency and accountability. Police unions fight those every step of the way. They block transparency by fighting to have the disciplinary records of cops who've been fired for misconduct kept secret. They fight accountability by seeking special protections and privileges for police officers who have killed or beat up falsely arrested the people who they're supposed to serve and protect. So I agree with my debaters who say that there's nothing wrong with any worker, including a police officer, organizing for better working conditions or more pay. Police unions should not be allowed to bargain for things like the use of deadly force or hiding the disciplinary records of bad apple cops. If a police officer violates the criminal law and the use of force, nothing that union can do, and
18: any of their power extends in any way to that, nor does it cover uh, civil liability for police officers. We have to remember, this is simply in the employment context. That's it. It governs the relationship between the employer and the employee, just like any other union. The other thing I would point out, and partially in response to something Vikrant said um, about You know, officers have to be held accountable if they use excessive force. So I think we all agree with that. The problem is, is that because of the nature of the work that police officers do, their their work is increasingly in the public space. Uh, They're on videotape. They're viral videos of police um, actions, and people are paying a lot more attention to it. Very easy for elected officials and even uh, police chiefs to fall into the trap of, of treating very harshly police officers, even when they've done nothing wrong, they get treated very harshly because of the public backlash.
17: No, well, there was a statement about videotapes and maybe we shouldn't believe them. I think that we can believe our own eyes when we see police in Minneapolis uh, put their knee on George Floyd's neck and strangle him to death. I think that one of the reasons that we're having this national reckoning on race is that all over the country, Americans have seen with their own eyes the violence and brutality of policing in communities of color.
1: Next up, we looked at income inequality, and that was one of the issues that had been much discussed during the presidential campaign. So here was our take, a debate with the resolution, it's time to redistribute
16: the wealth. This country cannot afford to do many of the things it needs to do. Our infrastructure is crumbling. It is falling apart. Many of our schools, our public schools in working class and poor areas uh, are overcrowded. The classrooms have 30 to 40 kids. Teachers are underpaid. The facilities are bad. We also know that there is a dearth of basic research and development in this country. People uh, are concerned about American competitiveness, but we are not doing much about it in terms of basic R&D and health care. We know there are huge numbers of people who are not able to afford health insurance, millions of Americans. Uh, During this period of coronavirus, it is all worse because we have something in the order of 35 million Americans who are out of work. Many of them, many of them are trying to decide between paying the rent and putting food on the table. We have an extraordinary number of children who are at this moment either homeless or hungry or both. Now, where is that money going to come from? Uh, It turns out that the typical American pays about 25 to 30% of his or her income in taxes right now. If you include sales taxes and property taxes, every tax, about 25 to 30%. But if you're a billionaire today, you're actually paying 23 percent on average. In other words, the richer you are, if you're very much at the very, very top, you are paying a lower tax rate. That's not only unfair, but at a time when so many people are so desperate and so many people are struggling so hard, it is unwarranted. It's a bad policy. Now, let me just add one other very important fact here and just quote Justice Brandeis to say we have a choice in this country and that choice is either great wealth in the hands of a few or a democracy. We can't have both because money at the top turns into political power.
20: These are really sort of wild estimates, often based on some very dubious assumptions. In fact, the numbers you just heard cited by our opponent might be off more than a factor of four. And the reason why we know so little is most of the richest Americans made their money starting their own companies, which they held closely and managed as they grew rich. If you look at the Forbes 400 richest Americans, eight of the 10 top richest Americans all got rich starting their own companies. And two thirds of the full 400 are self-made entrepreneurs. And unlike stock, or a publicly held company, it's only hard to put a value on a privately held company. It's also really hard to sell. And most rich people are much richer on paper and don't have a lot of liquid wealth to pay the tax, which means paying it will force them to sell their company sooner. Usually to private equity funds who will have a say in management and be a lot more short-term focused. Now, other countries have grappled with this when they had wealth taxes, and the way around it was maybe limiting the wealth tax based on how much income or financial assets they had, but this just created tons of loopholes which allowed them to get around paying the tax. In fact, lack of compliance is why so few countries tax wealth. In 1990, 12 countries, European countries tax wealth, not only four do, and it, the tax rates are very low and make up a really trivial amount of their total tax revenue. Switzerland probably collects the most in wealth taxes, and it's only 3% of their total tax revenue. A wealth tax also, because it's so hard to value, creates an incentive to keep a company private for longer and not do that IPO. That could mean possibly the next Amazon won't be sold in public markets, which in some ways worsens inequality because it means the average American doesn't have access to own our best fast growing companies. So even if you think we should need to tax rich people more, or even if you don't, you just think we need, to, we need more revenue to pay for all of the services we want, or just pay off our debts, and you think it's better to tax rich people than lower-income people, redistributing wealth or a wealth tax is a terrible way to do it. The wealth tax is just one way, and not the most efficient way,
21: I would agree with you. Um, look. <laughs> You were referring to wealth creation as if we live in a front porch community where you know wealth is distributed in pro- proportion to the entrepreneurship, you know of the neighborhood baker, butcher, and brewer. That's not the world we live in. Take Jeff Bezos, you mentioned Amazon. Uh, he's a smart man, he innovated, he, you know, he he got a lot of money. Good on him. Good on him. But which part of his two hundred billion is due to his entrepreneurship? And which part of it is due to the simple fact that his wealth breeds more wealth? (laughs) Because, as we know, the ultra-wealthy grow rich in their sleep, as it were. It's got nothing to do with uh, hard work, with risk-taking or economizing, uh, while millions, billions, are not so much left behind, but they are held behind because the Wealth concentration and the power of a big business—they conspire to cause stagnation for the majority. Uber market power enables corporations to usurp markets, to buy justice, to capture regulators, to you know, uh, pad political campaigns. In short, to poison our liberal democracies. In uh, 1901, Theodore Roosevelt famously broke up Standard Oil. The, uh, you know, against the background of a huge cacophony <laughs> of those screaming blue murder about the attack on innovation and entrepreneurship and so on. Uh, however, those democratic acts of redistributing power and wealth together eventually ushered in capitalism's finest hour. Now, sadly, since the end of Bretton Woods, uh, we have allowed cartels to dominate again. We face a stark option. Let the ultra-rich continue to snuff out society's potential by constantly redistributing wealth from the producers to themselves or alter the direction of distribution from the ultra-rich to society's innovators and maintainers. The added bonus being a chance for democracy to breathe again. As for how to do this, there are many different tools. The Wealth Act Tax is just one.
22: We're debating whether an approach based on a politics of envy that starts by putting the central problem as being tearing down the people who are most successful is the right approach to that problem. Or instead, a politics of inclusion, building up, bubbling up to support prosperity is the right way forward. That's the approach that I favor, and it's the reason why I oppose this resolution the wealth tax. These kinds of approaches are symbolic. They're not effective. There's a practical tax reform uh, agenda. It raises the capital gains uh, tax rate. It ensures that everybody complies with the income tax. It eliminates a range of tax shelters. It can raise $4 trillion, uh, far more than any reasonable estimate that any reputable economist supports uh, for uh, the wealth tax and can do it without arguing that there are people who need to be torn down. Now, look, I'm worried about political money. We should repeal Citizens United. We should change the laws that allow all kinds of giving uh, to PACs, especially in non-transparent ways. Here's what will happen if you actually try to say that people's wealth has to go away. They'll give their money to so-called charities. Those charities will intervene in all the political process that way. And if you don't like the Koch brothers and what they do to American politics right now, you will have far more of it. If you tell them that they can't keep their wealth and they can give it to whatever they want and they'll give it to something that will do much more to subvert the process. So the most important thing that I've learned is that it's not enough to care. You have to count carefully and rigorously if you want to make the world a better place. And framing the problem in terms of tearing down the most successful people isn't the way to fix those schools. it isn't the way to clean uh, the air, it isn't the way to repair a decaying infrastructure. Building from the middle class without a politics of envy is the way.
1: So that, everybody, was our IQ2 2020. And yes, it really was the year that was. Uh, And one thing we know for sure about 2021, it's going to give us a lot more to talk about, a lot to argue, well, let's say debate about we're going to be ready for that season. Uh, we're already putting it together with lots of new programs that we think are really going to help raise the level of discourse and really engage you. And about that, we could also use your help. Intelligence Square, I think many of you know, is a nonprofit effort. We are basically a philanthropy and we rely on your support to continue producing our series. So, this holiday season, as we are gearing up to present a new lineup of debates, I hope that you will consider making a donation to support us. And you can do that by going online to our website at iq2us.org. That's iq2us.org. the number two, US.org. So, uh, looking forward to seeing you next time, uh, and that'll be in 2021. Until then, I want to say thanks for being with us always. I'm John Donvan. Happy New Year, as we were all saying this time last year. This time, I'm saying Happy New Year and hoping it's for real. Bye-bye.
9: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus.